This is ReachMD, and you're listening to Conversations on Colorectal Cancer, sponsored by Lilly. We know just how hard it can be to keep track of all the research focused on preventing, detecting, and treating metastatic colorectal cancer, which is why today we're going to take a look at some of these current and emerging research avenues in colorectal cancer. Welcome to Conversations on Colorectal Cancer and ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Russell, and joining me is Dr. Axel Grothy, Director of Gastrointestinal Cancer Research at the West Cancer Center and Research Institute in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Grothy, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. To get us started, Dr. Grothy, can you give us an overview on the current momentum as you see it behind research efforts to improve prevention, detection, and treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer? So metastatic colorectal cancer and colorectal cancer in general, when we talk about screening, you know, we talk about earlier stages of colorectal cancer, has become more in the mind of people recently based on even just simple things like ads on TV that promote comprehensive stool testing for the early detection for colorectal cancer and the colobar testing, for instance, which actually is an easy, it's an interesting um, way to, to make patients more aware, families more aware of the need to be tested for an avoidable cancer. So secondly, we've seen more publications and more interest by the uh, mass media and by the um, you know, by TV and, and publications about the emergence of the and the increase of incidence in young colon cancer patients or young patients. So the uh, American Cancer Society has uh, lowered their recommendations for screening age in the average population to 45, given the fact that we see an increase of uh, incidence in colorectal cancer in the young adults, whereas in older adults that go through screening processes like colonoscopies and, and stool testing and these colobar tests, as we just mentioned, that those patients actually have a lower incidence of the population of lower incidence of colorectal cancer. So we see a disparity now between younger and older population in terms of colorectal cancer incidence and trends. So. This is, I think, a very interesting trend, creating more awareness for uh, the existence of core cancer and screening tools and uh, really trying to embolden the screening approaches toward a larger population, part of the population, including younger adults. So a lot of this does not happen without research and funding. Has the funding for any of this research, be it prevention to treatment, been on the rise lately? We see gradually increase of federal funding, you know, for cancer research in general, but not specifically for colorectal cancer. And a lot of these advances we've seen actually driven by private companies, by you know, really commercial interests to broaden uh, the screening efforts and treatment efforts for patients. So let's talk about the advances in screening for a moment. I understand there's been a fair amount of attention paid to approving genetic analysis of stool samples, including changes to the gut microbiome, to potentially identify colorectal cancer. What can you tell us about this? Now, that's an interesting point. Moving the screening away from the standard colonoscopy or endoscopy techniques to really identifying gene alterations in, in, in gene fragments in the stool of a population. Um, which actually could be it could go as a screening tool beyond colorectal cancer because a lot of these secretions of the GI tract, including gastric cancer, pancreas cancer, et cetera, will eventually end up in the stool um, so that this uh, stool um, DNA analysis might actually 
a, an opportunity to identify different cancers. Now, the analysis of microbiome is a little bit lagging behind because we don't know if we, we might know which microbiomes are stable for the development of colorectal cancers and which ones are not. But this is not a perfect cut between, you know, yes, these patients will have colorectal cancer or, or polyps, you know, as a precursor of colorectal cancer based on their microbiome status compared to other patients who might not have this uh, microbiome signature. There's still a lot to learn with regard to microbiome and the interaction to tumor biology and in particular how to um, therapeutically intervene to generate a more favorable microbiome. This is an area which we have really not tapped into yet. And on the preventive side, some recent studies have looked at daily low-dose aspirin as a preventive agent for colorectal cancer. What's the supporting evidence looking like on that front, and do we have any sense of what interactions with aspirin may be creating this anti-cancer effect? Yeah, so the aspirin story is fascinating because it's almost like a yin-yang effect. It depends on who you talk to. You see believers in the aspirin uh, anti-cancer effect, others, and, and would like to use it more broadly in patients, particularly also with the these uh, still present even though recently more disputed, effectively cardiovascular health in some patients. And others, you know, shy away from the potential gastrointestinal bleeding episodes that patients might have. I personally actually integrate a discussion about the use of aspirin in my interaction with patients who have gone through curative resection of their colon cancers and adjuvant therapy. When I talk about lifestyle changes to prevent the second cancer from uh, emerging, so I include the discussions about aspirin, and I actually encourage patients to use aspirin as a measure of um, as a, a tool for secondary prevention of colorectal cancers. Now, the mechanism how aspirin really works is not quite clear. We know that aspirin interferes with the COX-2, you know, uh, pathway, which we uh, which actually we know is important for cancer biology. In fact, there is a current current uh, study that is reading out as we speed an adjuvant setting in stage 3 colon cancer, uh, looking at the, uh, the effect of silicoxid, a more pure COX-2 inhibitor on uh, cancer outcomes and survival in patients with uh, early stage colon cancer. So we'll have these data probably by, you know, mid-2020. On the other hand, the anti-thrombotic effect or thrombocyte platelet aggregation effect of aspirin has also been quoted as a anti-tumor effect, because a lot of the tumor emboli we see that really carries metastasis uh, through the bloodstream are actually linked between tumor cells and platelet aggregates, so that the you know aspirin is preventing uh, in the in its capacity to prevent these platelet aggregates might actually also interfere with metastasis generation. And there are actually some very interesting data that came out of some population studies of patients with how did aspirin disease who did or did not take aspirin in their prevalence of metastatic malignancies, which showed that aspirin could be preventative, not just for the formation of cancer, but also for the uh, generation of metastasis in patients who have established cancer. In colorectal cancer, there were some publications that suggested that only cancer with certain PIC3CA mutations would benefit from aspirin, um, but uh, there are also data that have refuted exactly these molecular analyses, but we have not yet identified a key molecular subtype of patients and cancers that would benefit from aspirin. 
So Dr. Grothy, shifting our focus to the detection and characterization of these cancers, the issue of tumor sidedness has become a hot topic for genetically and clinically profiling colorectal cancer. What are the current research directions in this area? So the research directions that try to understand the biology and the, you know, the question of what, what happens with tumor sidedness and how does it work that it interferes with our um, uh, clinical treatment decisions and our uh, comprehensive molecular profiling to really understand the difference between left and right cell tumors. We're also focusing on the microbiome, which we've talked about a few times um, before, that um, the interaction between left and right sided tumors and the uh, respective microbiome could be different and could really explain the different biologic features we see between left and right sided cancers. So there is clearly an, an, an area of active research that we see and which will hopefully clarify that um, what is happening biologically in, these, in this regard to sightedness. So staying on detection for a moment, are liquid biopsies from blood or urine showing promise for detecting colorectal cancers early and monitoring for occurrence, or is that avenue not yet ready for prime time? With regard to liquid biopsies, I think we are at a threshold right now to integrate uh, them into clinical practice and various different levels. First of all, in terms of screening, there are efforts to look at you know, highly sensitive mutation analysis of uh, circulating uh, of cell-free DNA to identify uh, cancers, not just chronic cancers, cancers early uh, and really be a substitute for, let's say, the clinical exam and, uh, you know, individual screening for individual cancers like pap smears and PSA and all these different annual things that we do or not do because it might be controversial. So looking at liquid biopsies as a measure of population tests for early detection of cancer, that's probably several years off. What we do see, however, is the emergence of data that can help us guide adjuvant treatment decisions after resection of colon and rectal cancers um, when we identify the persistence of uh, circulating tumor DNA in the blood of patients after resection, after potential curative resection, when this um, should not exist, when the CTDNA should be cleared after resection. And we know that the presence of circulating tumor DNA after uh, potential curative resection is actually associated with a 100% risk of recurrence within three years after the tumor resection. So um, that is really something where I believe, you know, circulating tumor DNA will make inroads into clinical practice very soon. On the treatment front, we've seen a lot of momentum for refining therapeutic regimens based on emerging efficacy data. Can you walk us through some of the treatment advances you're particularly excited about for improving patient survival and quality of life? So what we've seen and what we should see is a more granular decision, individualized approaches toward first-line treatment and uh, sequential treatment along the idea of continuum of care of patients' metastatic organ cancer. So you should utilize the data that we have on patients. You know, we've talked about sightedness, molecular profiling, but uh, also just, you know, patient characteristics, age, performance status, goal of therapy, and we potentially reset metastatic disease and render the patient free of disease. And those, all these factors need to be taken into account and make better and more individualized treatment decisions for our patients in first and second line therapy. So I can believe, I do believe that this can help us be better doctors and we have developed a portfolio of different uh, treatment approaches 
um, from um, combinations of chemotherapy plus biologic agents, which really could cover a variety of different clinical scenarios, molecular profiles, etc., um, that will help patients have uh, received better therapies. Also, um, you know, respecting and, pre- uh, and preserving their quality of life for a longer time. The key issue in the management of metastatic colorectal cancer right now is that even in widespread metastatic disease, we keep patients alive for several years with ongoing therapy tailored toward the patient's needs. My, uh, what I always tell my patients is I want to uh, control the cancer with the least amount of therapy needed to uh, control the disease longer term, respecting patient's quality of life. So we have a lot of tools available right now, and this toolbox is increasing and really getting fuller really every year. Now with the emergence of targeted agents for BRI, B600 mutant tumors, uh, data from the so-called Bacon study, which showed that a combination of an egyptian antibody plus a DRAF inhibitor and potentially a MEK inhibitor really uh, can make a difference in patients in, the, in not even using chemotherapy, but really exploiting our knowledge of the biology of these cancers that have BYB600 mutations. So following up about all the things that are in your toolbox, how are new combination treatments such as immunotherapies mixed with chemo, targeted treatments, and the like changing the therapeutic landscape for colorectal cancer? So right now, immunotherapies only work in the 4 to 5% of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer that have a so-called MSR high or mismatch of deficient phenotype. Now, there are data emerging that a combination of some kinase inhibitors plus immune therapy like data that we see with regorafenib as a multi-kinase inhibitor plus nivolumab really has the potential to make the initially non-immunogenic tumors immunogenic and open the door for immunotherapy to work in the yeah, the in more patients with colorectal cancer. So that I think is a very interesting avenue to move forward. Combinations of chemotherapy with um, with uh, immunotherapy has been explored in colorectal cancer, has not been as successful as data that we've seen, for instance, in lung cancer, but I don't think the door has been closed yet for this approach. Then we've uh, seen several studies looking at radiation plus um, immunotherapy approaches um, to exploit the so-called abscopal effect, uh, releasing tumor antigens after radiation uh, so that the immune system can recognize those amount of immune response. Those uh, approaches have not been successful yet. So there's still a lot to do when we try to augment immunotherapies for the vast majority of patients with colorectal cancer. So what role are these targeted therapies playing or expected to play in metastatic disease? The targeted therapies have been used for many years in colorectal cancer, sometimes without a great understanding how they actually work. But the use of anti-VEGF therapy like the vesuvimab and in combination with chemotherapy is one of the standards of care. And each of the antibodies selected now by RAS and DRAS mutational status also becoming have also been a standard of care added to chemotherapy. The new um, avenue is really to look at molecular subtypes of colorectal cancers that might just be able to be treated with molecular targeted agents like the aforementioned beacon regimen, <clears throat> like the aforementioned beacon regimen combining EGF receptor inhibitor plus a BRAF inhibitor and potentially MEK inhibitor. So really creating a more specific chemotherapy-free treatment approach for patients with specific molecular alteration 
And then we have drugs like regorafenib, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor, which might have a signature effect in different uh, cancer types. So might not have one mechanism of action for all patients alike, but really might work in certain cancers in a different with a different mechanism than in other cancers, and could augment the efficacy of immunotherapy as seen recently in the regular uh, study. So before we close today's discussion, Dr. Grothy, are there any additional research avenues you think will be critical in the months and years ahead, especially any that you think are at risk of being overlooked? So in the next year and month, you know, moving forward in research in colorectal cancer, we will see the emergence of uh, CTDNA-based um, uh, uh, clinical trials um, in the minimal residual disease state, but also as a tool to longitudinally monitor the effects of our treatment on the molecular alterations of cancers and um, thereby guide our treatment decisions in a, a more prospective, more rational way. Right now, when we switch between treatment approaches, we do it mostly empirically, but if we had a tool at hand that could show us in which direction the cancer is and moving in terms of development of resistance mechanisms, we could become, we could um, uh, target these resistance mechanisms and affect cancer biology more effectively. So CGDNA will definitely be one area of research which will likely be integrated into clinical practice very soon. The question of how to manipulate and push the microbiome in a more favorable direction um, is a big one, not just for colorectal cancer, but uh, other areas of, you know, cancer and actually medicine, because we've seen that the patient's microbiome really interferes and affects a lot of um, other disease states, uh, not just cancer, um, but neurologic disease, cardiovascular health, et cetera. So this will be very interesting, and I'm just seeing the emergence of early uh, efforts in this area. And then, you know, in terms of... Um, understanding the genetic makeup of, you know, patients of, of the population that will eventually develop cancer. There's a whole area of, you know, genomic, you know, investigation of the, of the population that can potentially help us understand who will develop cancer and who will not, and that's early intervention and screening uh, more effectively used in the population. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion on the latest research efforts focused on metastatic colorectal cancer. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Grothy, for sharing all of that with us today. Thank you so much. The preceding program was sponsored by Lilly. Content for this series is produced and controlled by ReachMD. This series is intended for healthcare professionals only. To revisit any part of this discussion and to access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com mcrc. Thank you for listening. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.